1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a new show for and about people who think big. On this week's podcast, we find out what's really going on with climate change. The New York Magazine journalist David Wallace Wells caused a sensation a couple of years back with his essay, The Uninhabitable Earth, a degree by degree account of the consequences of climate change for our planet. He's turned it into a fantastic and, it must be said, terrifying new book of the same name. He joined us in London for a conversation with LBC presenter Matthew Stadlin.
2: David, it's great to have you here in London.
0: Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you.
2: Your book, The Uninhabitable Earth, A Story of the Future, is bleak. And what we're going to try and explore is whether there's any room for hope. But the first line doesn't begin in a promising way. It is worse, much worse than you think. Just how bad is it?
0: At the moment, it's pretty bad, which is to say we had unprecedented heat waves and droughts and wildfires and hurricanes and the first typhoon in um, February in the Pacific in recorded history. Um, That's where we are right now at about 1.1 degrees of warming. But we're almost certain to get almost twice as much warming as that, probably 2 degrees of warming, absolute minimum. And that would mean, according to the UN several hundred million climate refugees, it would mean some of the biggest cities in South Asia and the Middle East would become uh, literally unlivably hot in summer as soon as 2050. It would have massive impacts on everything from our public health to agricultural yields, etc. But that's our best-case scenario. Our um, The path that we're on now is for about four or even a bit north of four degrees of warming by the end of the century. And that would mean... There would be places on the planet that could be hit by six simultaneous climate driven natural disasters at once. It would mean global GDP at least 20%, probably 30% smaller than it would be without climate change, which is 30% is an impact that's twice as big as the Great Depression and it would be permanent. Um, it would mean agricultural yields half as bountiful as the ones we know today, and we'd be using that food to try and feed 50% more people than we have today. Um, and then there are all of these more complicated effects down the line. What do these sorts of impacts do to our politics, to the way that we organize our nations together, to how we prioritize um, the suffering of some people in the world and how we um, you know, organize humanitarian aid and, and all the rest of it? Because of the extreme weather of the last couple of years, we're beginning to get a kind of eye-opening portrait of the direct impacts of climate change. But some of these um, more indirect impacts, I think, are going to be just as, problematic, just as profound. And I'm not sure what politics will emerge in the coming decades in response to them. But I do think that um, they will be shaped dramatically by climate change. In fact, there's really nothing, no aspect of modern life, I think, that won't be shaped in some way or other by these forces.
2: So to be clear, you're absolutely certain that climate change isn't just something for the future. We're already experiencing it, we already have experienced and that climate change is without question in your mind, man made.
0: Absolutely. And um, it's not just that climate change is here. It's that it has brought us outside of the entire window of temperature that encloses all of human history. So the planet that you and I are walking on now is hotter than any planet that's ever been walked on by any human before. To me, that means it's a kind of an open question whether humans would have evolved at all on a planet that was always this hot. Um, I think we likely would have. But there are also more um, more complicated questions around whether we would have evolved developed agriculture and through agriculture, civilization, if the planet had always been this hot. Because in the parts of the world where we did develop agriculture, the Middle East, it's already becoming much harder to grow food. And it's, I think, quite um, difficult to imagine our having invented the system from whole cloth
1: under conditions
0: like the ones we live in today, which are really so different from all the conditions that have presided over all of human history, that in some ways, I think it makes more sense to think of us as having just landed on a new planet. Not all that different from the one that we've always known, but different enough that we can't take for granted all of the things that we've always taken for granted about the planet that we live on. And whether that extends to you know, as dramatic as civilizational collapse, I don't think we'll get all the way there. But if our agricultural yields are half as bountiful, that does raise questions about exactly how we're going to feed ourselves, how we're going to deal with drought and famine. And again, these these questions arise like wherever you are. If the California wildfires, which were absolutely crippling last year, burning more than a million acres, there's some science that suggests that they could get 64 times worse by the end of the century. There are impacts like that everywhere you look, and exactly how we'll respond and react, I, I think, is a major open question.
2: So given this apocalyptic language, why do you think it is that people just don't seem to care?
0: Well, I think each of us has um, bad training. We're trained every day by the world that we live in, the present day world. That anchors our expectations for the future, I think, very profoundly. We can read all we want about how things are going to get a decade from now, two decades from now. But when we look at our window, we see a world that is still... Relatively comfortable for us. And I think then we discount the warnings of what's to come. I think we also have a lot of emotional biases, kind of prophylactic reflexes that urge us to look away from really scary possibilities and to lean into some more optimistic scenarios. I think that's one reason why we've treated the question of uncertainty around climate change. We don't know exactly how bad it will get or when and in what ways as though there's a chance that no climate change will happen at all and no terrible impacts will happen. That's not true. No scientist would say that. But I think that's functionally how we've processed that news about uncertainty at the kind of average citizen level. And then I think um, we have a status quo bias. We don't really want to change things if we don't need to. And at the level of government and um, international cooperation, there's also a kind of collective action problem, which is to say, even if everyone agrees that we need to do something, every individual nation is incentivized to act more slowly and to try to let the rest of the world pick up the mess. Unfortunately, that's um, led us to none of us acting as quickly as we need to.
2: Because part of the problem has to be that we tend as individuals to trust, to an extent at least, in government and in world government. Well, I,
0: I think the trust is a part of it, but it's also just that's the job of government. So You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about um, individual lifestyle choices, whether people should be eating less meat, flying less. And, you know, I think I applaud those people who are taking those steps to reduce their carbon footprints. But, you know, if, if you have a concern about the plight of the poor, for instance, you don't ask that person to demonstrate their commitment to taking action by donating all their money to charity. They can much more effectively, much more plausibly, and much more responsibly just agitate for higher taxes and a a greater social safety net. I think the same is true for climate. We can make small differences in our individual lives, but then much bigger impacts are going to happen through policy. And that's what policy is for. It's to it's to multiply our own intuitions into something that's really scalable.
2: But does that then translate into your message to the people listening to this podcast being, listen, don't bother giving up red meat, don't bother not taking your transatlantic flight because it's not going to make a sufficient difference?
0: I think that to the extent that you are making trade-offs that it would be okay to make a trade-off where you don't make those choices and do really commit yourself to a new politics, organizing and being an activist, being an advocate on this issue. But I think in general, we really make a mistake when we're asking anyone to to conceive of climate in these kind of trade-off binary ways. I think in almost every case, we're dealing with, you know, it's a kitchen sink approach. We need all, all approaches. We need all solutions. We need all kinds of political messaging. We need all kinds of storytelling. It's just too big a crisis to solve in any one way. And so I think individual action can play a meaningful role there. I just think it's marginal compared to the impact that policy can have.
2: It seems to me that if individuals don't care, then it's less likely that politicians will care. How do you get your message across? You're actually an example of someone who has very successfully being able to reach people. You wrote a piece for the New York magazine in 2017 that I think was the most read piece in that magazine's history. It went viral. It was about worst-case scenarios. But how do news outlets, I'm talking about TV, radio, but also newspapers, make climate change sufficiently sexy, to use an odd word, entertaining, because news is, in a sense, about entertainment, in order to... Drive their listenership or to drive their audience, drive their viewing figures?
0: Well, my answer to that is um, just paying attention to the science and telling those stories as they unfold. So when you read about the horrors of these California wildfires, you read about people who left their cars behind when their tires exploded from the heat. And as they were running from the cars, their sneakers were melting to the ground from the heat. The wildfires in California are now melting so hot that it turns the silica in the soil actually into glass. Or when you read about the wildfires in, in Greece, that I read about, you know, the um, vacation goers at a beachside resort taking refuge in the Adriatic Sea to escape the wildfires. Um, or you read about the incredible devastation of hurricanes that are pummeling the Caribbean every year, multiple hurricanes. I think those stories sort of tell themselves, and the scale of drama that they enclose, I think no one can really turn away from. For me, the problem has been that most storytelling about climate for a very long time was reluctant to treat those stories as cinematic and to lean into those um, incredible human dramas, because the people doing that storytelling believed that responsible writing about climate had to be cautious, had to be careful, and had to be technocratic. And I think there is a place for that kind of writing, that kind of storytelling. But I think it's not the only way that people respond to the story. Um, and I'm somebody who has responded to the news really you know, through fear. Fear has been a major, major um, feature of my relationship to the subject since I really got into it. And I think there are a lot more people like me. Um, When I look around, I see a world that there are some people who are kind of at the risk of some falling into fatalism or despair. There are some people who are on the brink of giving up hope, but there's so many more people who are just complacent. And I know from my own experience that fear can awaken you from complacency. I know from history that fear can be motivating in exactly those ways. You know, when we campaigned against cigarette smoke, when we campaigned against drunk driving, we did that through fear very effectively. The UN says we need to have our global emissions in order to avert catastrophic warming by 2030. And they say in order to do that, we need a global World War II scale mobilization against climate. To use that World War II um, model as a, you know, a useful analogy, that was not a war that we fought out of hope and optimism. It was a war that we fought out of fear and alarm. And so I think that fear and alarm can be much bigger parts of this messaging. And I think since the UN's IPCC report from last October... They have been. I think, honestly, that's one reason we're seeing so much more grassroots enthusiasm and activism over the last year with the climate strike, Um, Greta Thunberg and her climate strike extinction rebellion here in the UK. And I think in the US, we're beginning to see the political upshot of that with You know, the Sunrise Movement producing um, this Green New Deal that many of the leading presidential candidates have signed on to. That's progress that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. And I think a big part of it is that the public storytelling about climate has finally begun to traffic in fear. And when people are scared, they take action.
2: Nonetheless, you are not the first to be so alarmed by climate change and its impact on us.
0: Isn't the truth
2: that this is all too late now?
0: Well, it depends what you mean by too late. Um, I think that there are some climate impacts that are going to happen Almost regardless of what we do, Um, probably just the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere right now would bring us a few tenths of a degree warmer, probably to about 1.5 degrees, and that would meaningfully increase suffering for sure. If we had a really focused politics that was committed at the absolute top level to decarbonizing in every way possible, I think it is conceivable that we could take action at a speed fast enough to avert two degrees of warming. Looking at our politics, I don't see that as happening, which is why I think that two degrees is about our best case. But the spectrum north of two degrees, every tick upward there is going to create more pain, more suffering, more dramatic impacts. So if we get to 2.3 degrees instead of 2.5 degrees or 2.5 degrees instead of 3 degrees or 3 degrees instead of 4 degrees, wherever we are on that spectrum, we will still be able to avert future warming by putting less carbon into the atmosphere. The math, the science is really very simple. It's not complicated to understand. The main driver of climate change is how much carbon we're putting into the air. And if we do less of it, the impacts will be less. If we do more of it, the impacts will be more, more intense. So while it's too late to, say, avoid some really horrifying impacts, we're seeing some of them already, I think it's never too late to take action. Because even if we get to what seems like a climate hellscape of four degrees, where we could have... $600 $600 trillion in global damages, which is double all the wealth that exists in the world today. Um, we could have twice as much war as we have today because there's a relationship between temperature and conflict. Even if we get there, it will still be the case that it's up to us how much more warming we, we engineer. And I think ultimately, while some of these impacts can seem terrifying and even overwhelming, they're that big, they're that scary, they seem to rewrite the whole um, future of the world, it's also a reminder of just how powerful we are, just how much power we have over the climate. Because if we get all the way there, if we get all the way to four degrees, or God forbid, five degrees, six degrees, it will be because of what we are doing now going forward. It won't be because of what our ancestors did. It will be because of what's happening over the next few decades. And that means it's in our power. It's in our control. We don't have anyone to blame. We won't have anyone to blame, but ourselves if we fail to take action.
1: With supply chains becoming more complex,
2: One of the most shocking passages in the book is where you describe and explain the so-called devil's choice involving aerosol pollution and how that has actually slowed the damage done by CO2 pollution. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us a very brief synopsis of that and just how scary it is as a choice.
0: Yeah, we, are, we have a ton of air pollution in this world. We have, it's really having an enormous public health impact. And just as a quick aside, I think that public health issues are one really neglected messaging strategy that climate activists can, can take because the public health impacts are quite dramatic. Now, air pollution is not a direct result of climate change, but it's caused by the same thing that causes climate change, which is to say the burning of fossil fuels. We are killing 9 million people a year already because of small particulate pollution in the atmosphere. Nine million people a year. That's the equivalent of a holocaust every year from air pollution. That pollution is also keeping the planet cooler. So the way that the whole system works, sunlight is transmitted from the sun to the planet, and some of it is reflected back into outer space by our atmosphere. The more particulates that are in that atmosphere, the more sunlight will be reflected, and the less of it gets absorbed by the planet, which means... If there's more pollution in the air, that means that the planet is a little bit cooler. And in fact, there are a lot of scientists who believe our future will be artificially engineering a kind of sulfur umbrella um, to do to have exactly this effect so that we could continue to produce carbon without the temperature of the planet heating up. Now, this is its own devil's bargain. But at the moment, we have this issue where 9 million people are dying annually. And yet, if we... Eliminated that pollution entirely, it would immediately raise the temperature of the planet at least half a degree and perhaps a full degree Celsius, which would bring us at least up until the brink of and possibly across the threshold known as the threshold of catastrophe, which many of the island nations of the world call genocide. So we have a choice. We can either address air pollution and save those lives, or we can. keep the planet a little bit cooler and a little bit more habitable. Neither of these is a good choice at all. In um, other words,
2: we could maybe go some way towards saving ourselves by killing ourselves.
0: Yeah. Let's
2: delve into a little bit more of the the detail of just how vulnerable we are. In the book, you say something approaching, I think, two thirds of the big cities of the world are on the coast. What does that mean in the context of climate change and rising seawater?
0: Well, I think at about The scientists, there's some dispute about this, but at about 2.1 degrees Celsius, several of the biggest ice sheets in the world will begin an irreversible melt. So that means that there's no stopping them at that point. Ice melts very slowly, which means the impacts will unfold over centuries. But if we lose all of the ice sheets, uh, the planet will probably have at least 50 meters of sea level rise and possibly a bit more um, that will have an unbelievably dramatic impact on the coastlines of the world It will require us to literally redraw our maps and move our cities. Um, I think sea level rise will happen slow enough that we will theoretically be able to manage that if we choose to. It'll be a question of capital prioritization and engineering. Who, which cities do we decide are worth saving? Which are not? Which are worth the cost of seawalls? Which are not? And the cost of these kinds of infrastructure projects are going to be absolutely colossal. Which means the best, by far, the best thing we could do is to stop that ice from melting in the first place. But you know, if it takes eight centuries for the sea level rise to emerge, then we have some time to adjust. The problem is a lot of these other impacts are actually happening much quicker. So on um, forest fires, on Agriculture on tropical disease on you know the economic impacts the impact on, on violence and conflict all of these are basically happening in real time sea level rises is a little bit of an outlier and in that way I think it's been unfortunate that it's um, so often used as a shorthand for the the risk the truth is. Big picture, it is probably the biggest risk because if we really get 50 meters of sea level rise, the impacts will be so dramatic. But because it's happening on such a time delay, the threat is much less imminent. Um, The impact on... For instance, direct heat, which could make Calcutta unlivable as soon as 2050, that's much more dramatic.
2: Europe has been in the grip of a migration crisis in recent years. Just how much more extreme could that become in the future, in the relatively near future, because of climate change?
0: The UN estimates that um, by 2050, at about two degrees of warming, we will have 200 million climate refugees. They think it could get as high as one billion, which is as many people as live today in North and South America combined. Now, personally, I think those estimates are a little high. You know, they're produced by people who have a kind of an incentive to raise alarm about the issue. But even if you um, cut them by a factor of 10, um, you're talking about uh, a global refugee crisis that could be, you know, 50 times bigger than the Syrian refugee crisis that has completely destabilized European politics and through European politics, really global politics. And that's what I mean when I talk about these sort of cascading effects. This goes much beyond the direct climate impact to exactly how we organize our societies and what kind of debt we feel we owe one another, to what extent we think there's an obligation for a nation like the UK, for instance, to take in more refugees in a world that is suffering in part because of an industrialization that the UK began, Um, to what extent the US feels that same responsibility as the country that is responsible for the lion's share of Um, emissions historically, and exactly how we negotiate those responsibilities going forward. It's a major open question. And I don't yet know exactly how it'll play out. I don't think any of us do. But I do feel that climate change and carbon will be at the very center of the way that we think about geopolitics in the 21st century, in much the way that say human rights or peace and prosperity dominated uh, geopolitics after World War II.
2: Key to solving this, if we still can, it seems to me is trust. You talked briefly there of incentivized scientists. How do you convince people listening to trust the science and to trust you when some would accuse you of being alarmist?
0: Well, the alarmism question, you know, I think um, it's the science that's alarming. And my book is 300 pages long. For large chunks of it, there are really every sentence is a summary of a different paper. I think that it is not just possible, but probable, that some number of those papers turn out to be inaccurate. That's how science works. We make revisions. We evolve our, our, our worldview and our projections. And I think it's even possible that a fair number of them get revised in a more um, hopeful direction. But I've been following the science for a few years now. And the number of papers that have made me meaningfully revise my understanding of what the future looks like in a more positive direction... I could count on my two hands, and the number of papers that I've read that made me revise that understanding in a bleaker direction, number in the thousands. So the the, the sheer volume of scientific research that is saying this is truly terrifying, the impacts are bigger than you could possibly imagine, even in fact so big that you may even think of them as unthinkable. The volume of that research is just overwhelming, and even if the vast majority of it turns out to be false or misleading, we're still going to be living with in a world that is almost unrecognizably transformed to the vantage of the present day. Now, I think going forward, we're likely to normalize all of this amount of suffering as we enter into it. And so I think someone living in 2060 or 2070 may not think, my God, the world is on fire and there is no hope for anyone. But you and I, looking at that world from the vantage of 2019, would have to say, this is an unconscionable situation. There's no way that we could live through that kind of suffering without taking dramatic action, which is one reason why I think it's important to, at this point in history, to cast our imaginations forward and take really seriously what all of the scientists are saying about where we could end up. Because if we're at 2.8 degrees worrying about 3 degrees, we're likely to be a lot less agitated about it than if we're at 1.1 degrees worrying about 3 degrees. The difference is mobilizing because it's terrifying. The difference between 2.8 and 3 degrees is small. And we can probably think, oh, it can get a little bit worse. We'll always be able to think it could get a little bit worse. But if you take in the full picture, which I think and hope the book does, you see we must take action now to avoid truly, truly unprecedented levels of human suffering.
2: So what represents the greatest challenge and threat to humankind, climate change denial or climate change apathy in other words those who deny that it's happening or those who know that it's happening or are almost certain that it's happening at least but still aren't doing anything about it i'm talking on a governmental level here
0: personally i think that apathy and complacency are much bigger problems i know i know the data in the us much better than in the uk but um, in the us only 27% 73% of americans believe that global warming is real and happening that means that only 27% of them don't believe it 26% of americans believe that we live among aliens um, so this is not a block of people that is big enough that really should exert veto power over our politics. Um, and it's falling. Those number, that 73% number is up 15% just since 2015. So I think the group of people who are true deniers is going to shrink. It probably won't get to zero. I'd like it to get to zero, but it probably won't get there. But I think it's already small enough that it doesn't have to have a meaningful impact on our politics. The question is... Unless
2: your president is numbered among them. Yeah,
0: well... Personally, I think that Donald Trump is actually less of a denier than just a self-interested sort of skeptic who sees advantage for the U.S. in acting more slowly. And in that way, I think he's actually more like many of the other leaders of the world than we tend to believe. Um, You know, Justin Trudeau talks a big game about climate change, but he's approving new pipelines. Angela Merkel has approved massive investment in green energy, which has been a huge boon to the world. And yet she also retired enough nuclear capacity that... Germany's emissions are going up, even though they're basically, they're totally at the cutting edge of a green energy revolution. They're still getting dirtier um, because of how she's sort of mismanaged um, that transition. And that's really true everywhere you look in the world. There are nations, there are leaders who are deeply committed to climate change at the rhetorical level, but the behavior of their countries is not nearly as fast. And in fact, not much faster than America under Donald Trump. So I think that there is a real problem of our politics not responding to the crisis as we would want it to. But I don't think functionally it's about denial as much as it is about perceived self-interest. And in that way, I'm encouraged by a whole new batch of economic research, which suggests that the old conventional wisdom, that climate change was really expensive, both in the sense of requiring upfront investment and in the sense of having to forego economic growth, Say closing coal plants before they um, before they reach retirement age, that that is backwards. And in fact, we have the new research. All the new research suggests that climate change will be so expensive that faster action is going to create much more wealth and make us make us much more prosperous than slower action. There was a major study last year suggesting that we could add $26 trillion to the global economy by just 2030 through rapid decarbonization. I'd guess that that number is a bit high. I think it's a bit optimistic um, that we'd be able to add that much wealth. But all of the economic conventional wisdom now is the reverse of what it was just a few years ago. And that means that when policymakers really start processing that news, they will, I think, approach the issue differently, seeing massive opportunities for wealth creation in fast action, rather than seeing reasons um, to avoid action for the sake of jobs or economic growth.
2: In the book, you list mass extinctions of the past. Do you think we are in the midst of a mass extinction?
0: I don't think there's any denying it. I think the the World Wildlife Foundation says that 60% of all vertebrate mammals have died since 1970. There are big studies not as global showing that insect populations are falling perhaps as much as by three quarters. And The dramatic and horrifying thing is that, um, you know, there have been five mass extinctions before, and four of them were caused by uh, global warming (laughs) produced by greenhouse gas. We're now adding carbon to the atmosphere 10 times faster than the fastest global warming period from greenhouse gas in the Earth's history. And you'll hear a lot from, they wouldn't call themselves climate deniers, really climate skeptics, who would say, you know, I don't understand why we're so worried about global warming. The planet's been hotter than this in the past. That's true, but humans were not around then. You know, if the last time the planet was four degrees warmer, there were alligators and palm trees in the Arctic. And just give you a sense of what that would mean for life at the equator. It's completely different. It really is, as I said earlier, it's a completely different planet that we may be heading into. And I think, you know, humans are adaptable. Civilization is ingenious. I don't even think that if we get to four or five, even eight degrees of warming that we're going to be wiped off the map by this. But the conditions of possibility will be so transformed that we'll be engineering ways to live in an entirely different manner than the way we think of now as modern life.
2: And this isn't just about the uninhabitable Earth, it's about the uninhabitable oceans, and we are, as we know, doing huge damage to our oceans through the use of plastic. Give us a sense of the scale as you describe it in the book.
0: Yeah, plastics, um, I mean, plastic pollution is it really dramatic problem. I think the the stat I cite in the book is that by 2050, there'll be more um, plastic in the ocean than fish. But there has been a huge movement just over the last couple of years, especially in the UK, actually, since the, um, I guess it was an episode of Blue Planet um, that focused on on plastic pollution. There's been a huge movement against it. And I think that will begin to take um, effect soon. Personally, I think that plastic panic is a little bit of a red herring. I think that, you know, I I would like the oceans to be totally clear and and beautiful. Um, That would be a better planet for me to live on. It would be a better planet for everyone to live on. But climate change, global warming, climate change is so unmistakably the prime threat, not just for for those of us who care about the environment, but for those of us who care about the future of human life and human civilization. And I worry a little bit that people may think that they're doing their part by mobilizing against plastic, when in fact plastic is basically unrelated to the climate change issue. It's just an incredibly powerful image. And this is, I think, a really important... um, There's a, a reason that all of the extreme weather is so important. You know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, We were able to mobilize in places like the U.S. and the U.K. against air pollution because we could see it. We could see the smog. You can't see carbon. It's been invisible. And that's one reason, I think, why people have been so slow to take it up as a political cause. Plastic panic is a vivid illustration of how powerful just a few images can be in telling the story. And I think, actually, the California wildfires in particular have been that kind of teaching tool when it comes to climate. Even those of us living far away from anywhere that could possibly be ravaged by wildfire saw those those videos, saw those photographs, and were horrified not just in an abstract way but in something in a way that felt much more immediate and imminent and I think that's a really important vector for climate messaging going forward that we really emphasize how close at hand these impacts are, both close at hand in terms of time and in terms of place. Um, I think for a long time we understood if we lived off the coastline we'd be safe, and that if that climate change was going to happen only at the timescale of decades and maybe centuries. Both of those were really unfortunate misapprehensions. Climate change is happening very, very fast. Half of all the emissions that we've produced in the history of humanity from the burning of fossil fuels have happened in the last 30 years. And it's happening everywhere. When you think about the economic growth impacts, the impact on conflict, the impact on agricultural yields, etc., There's nowhere on the planet that you'll be able to escape this no matter how far from the um, the coastline you are. And I think that's really what I hope is the ultimate message of the book is not just things are going to get really bad, but that this system is all-encompassing. It's inescapable. Our lives and the lives of our children will be defined by it so much so that we'll think of the 21st century as the century of climate change in much the same way that we once thought of the 19th century is the century of modernity or industry, and say the late 20th century as the era of financial capitalism. That's how dominant this force is. Even if we avert the worst outcomes, it will be because we took such dramatic measures, building in whole new infrastructures, completely rebuilding our transportation fleet, reimagining how we process energy, completely rethinking diet. We will have to do all of those things to avert real catastrophic warming. And so even if we do that, we will still have created a world that is defined by the impact of climate change, even if we're avoiding some of that suffering.
2: So just before I ask you finally, whether you personally are optimistic or or pessimistic, how much room there is for hope, what do you think is the one central change that humankind needs to make? What is the one key solution?
0: I think it's all one solution, which is we just need to completely eliminate carbon. Um, It sounds, I mean, I think that's not exactly the answer that you were looking for, but it's such a complex problem. You know, philosophers call it a wicked problem. It's everywhere you look. When I turn on the light, when I get in a car, when I sit down to dinner, every aspect of modern life has a carbon impact, a carbon footprint. And we need to literally zero out those impacts everywhere they are. To talk about any one particular, um, like, approach, personally, I think the lowest hanging fruit, the thing that all politicians of the world should commit to immediately, is completely eliminating the subsidies for the fossil fuel business, which are enormous, or some estimates as high as $5 trillion a year. But that will only make a tiny dent in the problem, ultimately. The problem is so big that we can't solve it with any single silver, silver bullet solution. We need to really radically rethink everything about the way that we live.
2: And given the hugeness of that challenge, how optimistic can you be?
0: I think it's all a matter of perspective. So I mentioned earlier that we all of us anchor our expectations, even if irrationally, in our experience of the present day and our experience of today's climate. If that is your baseline, I think it's impossible to be optimistic. There's no way that we're going to avoid dramatically more warming than we have now. And there's no way I don't think that we'll be able to avoid dramatically more suffering as a result. But personally, I think it's a much more reasonable baseline of expectation to work off of where we're headed, the track we're on, which means 4.3 degrees of warming by the end of the century. And I think on that front, there's quite a lot of reason for optimism. Green energy has gotten much, much cheaper very, very quickly. Actually, much much more quickly than even its advocates would have guessed a decade or two ago. That means now in many parts of the world, clean energy is cheaper than dirty energy. And I think that'll happen in short order in the entire world. In fact, I just saw a report today... That suggested that in many parts of the West, it's not just that like the, uh, the marginal unit cost of green energy is cheaper than the marginal unit cost of dirty energy. It's cheaper to retire dirty energy plants and build entirely new plants um, to make up for that cost. So green energy is really exciting. I think the political change that we've seen over the last few years is quite dramatic and exhilarating. And I think that our policy will sort of begin to reflect that too. I think there are a lot of other small-scale experimentations going on with, for instance, lab-grown meat. There are some research showing that even if you don't want to eat a, a hamburger that comes out of a test tube, that if you feed a real-life, real-life um, cow, Seaweed, that it could cut their methane emissions by 95 or 99%, um, which could basically single-handedly eliminate the carbon footprint of beef entirely. There's great research in what's called carbon capture technology, which are um, methods to suck carbon out of the atmosphere so that we don't have to decarbonize quite as quickly as we would otherwise have to. That has been progressing really rapidly, even though it's still considerably more expensive to Um, take carbon out of the atmosphere than it is to put it up there in the first place. Really, everywhere you look, there is reason for optimism. Things are moving. The problem is we don't have that much time. Um, And I don't think, I think basically in no sector are we on track to meet the goals that the UN set forward last October um, for averting what they call this catastrophic level of warming.
2: And very finally, David, will we as human beings still be here in a thousand years' time?
0: I expect we will be, but I also think that that question has to do with a lot beyond climate. Um, I think it has to do with asteroid impacts and nuclear war and disease, all that kind of stuff. And climate change will impact um, the conditions under which all of those arise. But I think that um, we will endure this threat. The question is in what form and transformed in what ways.
2: David wallace thank you so much for sharing your story.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: This week's podcast was presented by Matthew Stadlin and produced by me, Vass Christodoulou. Our guest was David Wallace-Wells, whose new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, A Story of the Future, is out now. For more about science and technology and the environment, visit us on YouTube, on your favourite social media, or pop along to one of our live events in London, where we host a rolling programme of talks, debates, festivals and conferences. Thanks for listening.